You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Elon Musk is the chief twit. And that's about all we definitely know about his takeover of Twitter. Musk took on his new role with a gag, walking into the company's San Francisco headquarters holding a sink, then taking some serious action, firing most of the leadership, the CEO, the CFO, and the general counsel, and taking the time to tweet a baseless conspiracy theory about the attack on Paul Pelosi, which has since been deleted. All his actions leaving more questions than answers. And taking the time to tweet a baseless conspiracy theory. Is this a done-done deal? Is it there no turning back? This is it? He owns Twitter. Oh, this is a done deal, all right. One of the things that is absolutely the case when you've got a public company that gets bought out Once those shareholders get paid, which they have, there's kind of no way to get the toothpaste back in the tube. So, you know, some other kinds of deals, maybe with a private company, there there might be ways to have some remedy or maybe even reversing the thing afterwards. But this thing is absolutely a done deal. That doesn't mean it's going to be free from controversy over the next few weeks to months. But there's no way to put this toothpaste back in the tube. It seems like he's approaching this in a rather chaotic way. Yeah, I mean, you got to figure that it's sort of ironic that someone who owns a spaceship company seems to be building this spaceship as he's flying it. And there just has not been a coherent plan that he laid out ahead of time at the time that he signed up this deal. Certainly not during the summer because he was essentially trying to sabotage the deal, so he didn't really have a plan. And then finally, when you know it became pretty apparent that he was uh, going to have to come back and close the deal on the original terms, you know, he, he started kind of resurrecting a couple of the I don't know, sort of embryonic thoughts that he had, but no one really knew knew exactly what his plans were, and I'm not really even sure Mr. Musk had a complete idea of what the plans were, and that creates a big problem, particularly when you're taking over a company that has thousands of employees, has an ongoing business, and is looking to the new leader for a transition plan. The transition plan thus far has seemed a little bit chaotic, as has Mr. Musk's own comportment on the platform. You know, on, on the one hand, acknowledging that, you know, he doesn't want the company to turn into a, a free-for-all hellscape, right, on postings. But on the other hand, retweeting a, you know, completely non-credible source that had been debunked in the past about, you know, what appears to be a completely unsubstantiated story on Mr. Pelosi's unfortunate attack. So I think it's given a lot of people whiplash, not knowing exactly what to expect. And that's not just people, you know, who are sort of the public watching this and not just the employees at Twitter. Clearly, they're experiencing it. But, you know, you got to figure also if you're one of the people that lent money into this deal, one of the banks that lend money in these deals, 
Charles or you know one of the, the folks who's invested alongside Mr. Musk, you kind of have to wonder exactly how he's going to pull this rabbit out of the hat. Thus far, albeit only on 72 hours worth of records, uh, things don't look um, all that under control. Obviously, he tweeted he is the chief twit. Is he going to be the CEO? Is that clear? Is he going to run the company? At present, that appears to be exactly the case. There's a, a larger issue of, uh, you know, being a CEO of a bunch of different companies that uh, can, at the very least, uh, be a draw on your attention. And so I think this has always been a big concern at Tesla and SpaceX about whether Mr. Musk's attention is appropriately t- attuned to those companies. You know, Twitter, quite frankly, to you know, undertake this transition at this latest stage, I don't see how um, he can avoid putting a lot of his attention into this company right now. At some point, probably will make sense for him to have a CEO that he can delegate a lot of power to. But, you know, even if he found that CEO today, he'd probably be sort of the person behind the curtain in a lot of those calls anyway. So functionally, I don't see a way to avoid him acting as CEO, at least over the next couple of months, uh, to put in place whatever plan that has not fully been disclosed yet that he has for, uh, you know, turning this company into uh, more of a revenue positive company, which he's going to have to do even more urgently than the previous board did, because this is a company that has a lot more debt now that it has to service. As you mentioned, he said that he doesn't want it to become a free-for-all hellscape, but he paints himself as a free speech absolutist. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case, but does it seem inevitable that he's going to loosen content moderation? Well, it certainly seems that he has represented himself as someone who is not going to be as, you know, mealy-mouthed or sensitive about content moderation as were his, you know, precursors at Twitter. On the other side of the coin, however, he's never run a social media platform. And, you know, I think we sort of saw Twitter get to where it got largely by dint of a series of very, very public problems and controversies involving incendiary content being posted on the site. And so, you know, it's conceivable that he's going to march in saying, I'm a free speech absolutist, and then start ticking off various exceptions to free speech absolutism, and end up pretty much in the same position that the Twitter board was on content moderation before he got there. Now, that remains to be seen. My guess is for optics alone, you wouldn't want to um, put exactly into place what what Twitter had before he was there. But, you know, he's already gotten a fairly strong uh, message across the bow from advertisers that unless he, you know, makes sure that the most incendiary type of content stays off the platform, they're going to pull the plug. And, you know, quite frankly, that's currently the most lucrative source of revenue that Twitter has. You know, it may be able to pivot to various types of licensing fees and user fees and membership fees, but that's not where they are right now. Most of their money comes in from advertisers. And those advertisers, I think, are one of these constituencies that's sitting on the sideline trying to figure out whether he's actually going to be able to put a body around this rocket before it makes it into space. His taking the company private, how does that affect regulation of Twitter? 
Well, remember, just about any other piece of regulation that would be present for a large communications platform would still apply to, to Twitter. The thing that it takes it out of is the purview of the SEC to require mandated periodic disclosures of its financial conditions, its plans, its strategies, and so forth. And so a lot of times when companies are taken private, part of the reason they're taken private is that they want to, you know, they want to adjust those strategies. They want to adjust those financial metrics in ways that aren't going to be patently observable for everyone, including their own competitors. So that's going to be, you know, a significant part of Twitter falling off the radar screen. But that doesn't mean that other regulators, state regulators, federal regulators, the FCC, for example, wouldn't necessarily have some ability to oversee what's happening on the platform. It's just that these mandatory disclosure requirements and, you know, various types of of other securities regulations are now no longer going to apply to Twitter because it's not a publicly traded company. The EU is going to have the Digital Services Act, and an EU commissioner tweeted, in Europe, the bird will fly by our rules, because Elon Musk had tweeted, the bird is free, the Twitter bird. Um, (laughs) Fair warning to him that Twitter in Europe is going to be different. Yeah, uh, you know, free is a relative term, and I guess on some level the EU has been uh, doing a a little version of flipping the bird, as (laughs) as it were. (laughs) And so, so, you know, I think it's a reminder that just because you're a privately traded company does not mean that the other, you know, elements of uh, state regulation don't apply to you, particularly uh, when it pertains to a communication forum, and particularly in venues like the European Union that, you know, don't have constitutional restrictions on impairments of free speech, right? The commitment in the U.S. to the extent that there there is one towards free speech is also constitutionalized here. And so that kind of gives a little bit longer of a leash to someone who's a self-proclaimed absolutist when it comes to issues regarding free speech. Not so much in Europe. And so to the extent that Mr. Musk aspires for this to be a global platform, which he clearly does and which it clearly is already, thumbing his nose at these other forms of content regulation, you know, would be a, a version of stepping, you know, kind of on a different type of landmine than one that he's, you know, become used to at, at some of these other companies. One thing he's done is that he's going to actually it was an idea from Facebook. Twitter's going to get a content moderation council. Has it really done anything at Facebook? I think that's arguable whether it's done anything or not. It certainly has has created for for Facebook the optics that they want to you know call in the you know quote unquote experts uh, as to what constitutes reasonable and permissible content restriction. And there's another question about you know who's going to be on that committee? Are they going to have any real power uh, to the extent that he decides to ignore them? Do they have any recourse themselves? How does that dovetail with a you know, proclamation that the site is going to be, you know, more of a free speech absolutist sort of site. I think a lot of those things remain to be seen. And it's it's certainly conceivable, given what he's disclosed already, that, yeah, he'll, he'll set up a, a panel and they will meet periodically with, you know, Danishes and pretty good coffee to discuss, you know, various types of phenomena. We'll issue um, reports on extremely high quality carbon fiber paper that will then, you know, basically, you know, be ignored. So, We'll see how that plays out. I think it's really a you know an overture to try to signal to outsiders, and it's a sensible one to say, look, 
we are going to try to be self-aware about what happens with our content moderation policies, and I'm not going to just be making calls on the fly. I'm going to have this council of sage advisors to advise me, but, you know, look, the proof's in the pudding, and we'll have to see what that council looks like, uh, how it's staffed, and what real authority it's given, and none of that has been made clear to anyone as far as I know. I think what a lot of people are concerned about, at least on the left, is the return of, for example, Donald Trump. Has Musk made any decisions? I know that Kanye West, yay, was permitted back on the site, but then Musk said that was a decision that was made before he took control. So have any decisions been made about whether Trump is back? Well, I think the uh, that's still uh, unclear. And for the record, Ye was actually only had been in a restricted zone in his account. It wasn't completely kicked off the site. And it had ha- all of this action had happened before Mr. Musk uh, closed the deal. Whether Mr. Trump is allowed back onto the site or not is, I think it's going to be a tough call. On the one hand, you know, to the extent that Musk himself says this is a site that's going to be committed to free speech and an open marketplace of ideas, it's hard to, you know, to say that and then at the same time say we're going to maintain this ban against a former president of the United States. On the other hand, there's a reason that Donald Trump got kicked off of Twitter, and that's for posting what appeared to be fallacious and incendiary content on on Twitter and doing it repeatedly. And so there's a a, a kind of a tension that I think has probably presented itself. If if it hasn't already, it will soon. That, you know, the, the social media space already has been divided, right? When Mr. Trump got kicked off Twitter, he ended up creating his own social media platform that he is now a substantial owner of and probably wants to attract more of an audience to. So, you know, Parler, which, you know, Kanye West has said he wants to purchase Parler is another sort of right-leaning social media platform. So the space itself had already begun to fracture along ideological lines. And it's conceivable that trying to pull back in an already fractured right wing that, you know, some are still on Twitter, some are not, is going to cause wide scale defections on the other side of the of the ideological spectrum. That's a, right now a relatively loyal audience might even be willing to pay money to stay on the site, but not to the extent that the site ends up, you know, starting to become a, a marketplace that uh, that particular group of sort of more left-leaning, maybe some centrist folks, finds objectionable. They can you know, pretty easily decide that they're going to jump off and onto something else. They do give up something. Obviously, there are you know, a lot of people who are on Twitter have spent years trying to cultivate a following, and that type of a network externality is a hard thing to replicate. But it's not unbreakable either, and you know, a sufficiently extreme movement in a way that causes people to really have second um, guessings and, and, and misgivings about Twitter, no doubt could catalyze you know, a decision to migrate you know, to LinkedIn or Facebook or uh, any number of, uh, of other alternatives. So this is a kind of a, a difficult balance, it seems to me, that Mr. Musk is going to have to navigate. How much can he turn this company uh, and this platform into a you know, non-judgmental and permissive platform, but by the same token, not lose this big segment of audience that is essentially the audience that's gotten left behind as Parler and Truth Social have essentially, you know, formed and tried to attract uh, some of the audience. I should also note that because those other entities themselves 
you know, are now relatively established, though their audiences and their footprint are small, they're going to want to hold on to those folks as well. So how easy it's going to be to reclaim that territory uh, still remains to be seen. In line with bringing money to the platform, he wants to take away the blue badges of verified users if they don't pay for the site's new subscription service, Twitter Blue. I think that's one of the things they're trying to experiment with is, you know, how strong are these network effects in which people who've been, you know, cultivating an online following have become verified users? How much are they willing to, to pay to maintain that status. Obviously, once you become prohibitively expensive, everyone decides, no, I'm either going to dump the blue badge status or I'm going to move to a different platform. And once the blue badges are being charged for, it may well be that the nature of their status changes. Maybe at some point, it's no longer the folks who are the big influencers, but the folks that are willing to pay the most for it. And at that point, why should anyone necessarily pay any uh, particular attention to someone because they have a blue badge? So this is a Look, it's it's one area where, you know, he probably should be thinking a little bit about can I monetize the folks that are likely to be the most loyal users of Twitter? And the blue badge folks are, in fact, the folks that have some of the largest networks on Twitter right now. So it's not a crazy idea to try to figure out, is it possible to monetize that in some way? Uh, and it could, in fact, be some sort of a monthly subscription price. But once that gets too high, it not only becomes hard to afford, but it becomes almost like a personal affront to the nature of how these blue badges got built up to begin with. And that could hasten the departure on a pretty wide-scale basis. But this is definitely a um, delicate operation, and I think it can backfire relatively quickly if you don't proceed with, you know, appropriate caution. Is there a time limit for how long they have to turn things around? Well, yes and no. I guess on the one hand, you know, Elon Musk substantially owns this company and he's still the richest person in the world. So, you know, if they run out of money, maybe he can, you know, cough up a little bit more and and convince some of his friends and colleagues to cough up more. On the other hand, their patience is not going to be infinite to the extent that it doesn't look like this company is actually doing anything more than sort of spiraling at current altitude or maybe even falling in altitude. They're not going to be too anxious to kick in more money. And in addition, they're not really sitting on a treasure trove of cash to absorb losses that they are likely to have to incur while they're experimenting with different ways to alter and expand and monetize the platform. Although Twitter had a decent amount of cash on hand, you know, almost $6 billion on hand, a lot of that apparently went into the closing of the transaction, largely to pay off the pre-existing debt that Twitter had. So their cash margins, their margin of error is actually quite thin before they would have to go back to someone to help provide them with additional capital. I think that makes the timeline a little uncomfortably short for Mr. Musk unless, you know, he's basically just willing to provide that capital himself. And he might be, but it's certainly more painful than it would have been five or six months ago with Tesla now trading at far lower values and most of his wealth is tied up in his paper ownership of Tesla stock. Thanks, Eric. That's Columbia Law School professor Eric Talley. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Republicans have won a ruling on mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania, a state where a close race could determine control of the Senate. In a unanimous decision, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has ordered officials not to count votes from mail-in or absentee ballots with the wrong date marked on the envelope. But the court split on the question of whether that state law provision violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brofault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, wasn't this same issue before the courts in Pennsylvania, before the 2020 election? This issue has been in and out of the Pennsylvania federal and state courts for the last several years. And previously, the state courts and the Third Circuit had argued that this requirement that ballots be dated. Now, this doesn't affect the question that the ballots have to be in by the deadline. This is not any effort to change the deadline. It's just that the state law requires that the ballot be signed, put in a security envelope, and the outside of the envelope be dated. But the Third Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, ruled in an earlier case dealing with a state election that they would have to count ballots even if the date was missing or improper, so long as the ballots had been received on time, because the fact that the ballot was not dated was not material to the voters' qualifications. In other words, if the ballot's been received on time, why does it matter whether it's dated or not? The state law does require the dating, but part of the federal voting rights law says that you shouldn't deny anybody the right to vote for an error or omission on anything relating to elections if it's not material to determining their qualifications. And omitting to put a date on something when the thing has still come in by the deadline, the Third Circuit rule was not material. The Republican Party tried to seek review of that in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court wound up ultimately vacating the decision as moot, as opposed to leaving it in place. And so, in a way, the previous federal court decision had no precedential effect. So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had to decide this. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court came to the opposite decision from the Third Circuit and then deadlocked three to three on the question involving the Civil Rights Act? So the state secretary of state had adopted a guidance for the county board saying you have to accept them even if they're not dated, if they've arrived on time. And so the Republican Party sued, and apparently there's a procedure in in the Pennsylvania system allowing them to sue directly in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Pennsylvania Supreme Court held that the guidance violated the state statute, which requires that ballots be dated, but where the court divided evenly, three to three, is on the question of whether that state law was itself in violation of the federal voting rights law, which makes it illegal to refuse to count the ballot if any error or omission on it is not material to the voter's qualification to vote. The argument is that if the ballot is actually turned in on time, the lack of a date on it isn't really material to whether the voter was a proper absentee voter. That was the issue that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court divided on 3-3. Can this decision be appealed? I think they have to start in a whole new case because you can't appeal a state Supreme Court decision to the Third Circuit. You have to bring a new lawsuit, and it's probably too late for that. 
this will likely result in more Democratic-leaning votes being tossed out because so far over 900,000 mail ballots have been returned in Pennsylvania. And of those, over 70 percent have come from voters registered as Democrats. Why do Democrats vote by mail so much more than Republicans? It used to be the case that there was no difference in voter usage. And indeed, I think there was some evidence that if you go back 20 years, Republicans used absentee voting more than Democrats. Many Democrats then were suspicious that these votes wouldn't be counted. And also, early on, especially in states that did not have the automatic right to get an absentee ballot, it was mostly used by people who were either ill or absent from the state and maybe on business. And so it tended to lean a little bit Republican or at least be neutral. But starting really with the 2020 election and, and Trump's demonization of absentee voting has led all Republicans to generally demonize absentee voting and has led them to adopt laws that make it harder to absentee vote and has led them to bring challenges to situations in which uh, absentee voting is being used. So basically the Republican Party, which previously was either equally supportive or just indifferent to absentee voting, has, uh, at the federal and state level, has um, basically, whether it's through litigation or through legislative change, turned against it. And so I think Republican voters are consequently have begun to turn against it. Another thing that... Former President Trump vilified, and Republicans seem to be as well, is drop boxes. Exactly. So we had the situation in Arizona where there were armed men wearing Mm -hmm. flak jackets guarding Mm -hmm. these drop boxes, and there were incidents of harassing people. They're taking Mm -hmm. photos of them. Some Mm -hmm. of the photos are being published. Mm -hmm. And a judge... Second time around, the first time he didn't block it. Second Mm -hmm. time around, he did block them. So tell us Mm -hmm. about that. Yes, it's exactly as you say. Um, So drop boxes have been around for some time. The idea of a drop box is it's a secure special box created by the local elections board. Some of them are just outside the elections board that are available when the board is closed, you know, at night or more convenient for people who are driving by. Some of them are put in satellite locations to make it more accessible to people throughout a county. They've been around for some time, but they were used rather heavily in 2020 because in the COVID circumstances, many more people were using absentee ballots and also because of a desire to discourage people from coming into polling places because of the desire to, you know, to keep people apart during COVID. Drop boxes are an enormous convenience to make it easier for people who want to cast an absentee ballot and don't trust the Postal Service to get their ballot securely returned. But again, as part of the general hostility to absentee voting, Republicans have become very hostile to drop boxes and are convinced somehow that they're being used to deposit fraudulent ballots. They're also particularly hostile to the idea that some people might be dropping off more than one ballot, such as a husband might be dropping off the spouse's ballot, or a parent might be dropping off their adult child's ballot, or an adult might be dropping off a parent's ballot. And so, yes, there are these sort of vigilantes now being organized to show up outside ballot box locations and are engaging in various degrees of harassment, sometimes outright harassment, you know, calling and yelling at people, sometimes more subtle, standing around with guns and body armor, or taking pictures of people and taking pictures of their license plates and then posting them on websites with the suggestion that these people are somehow committing voter fraud. And so you had a long list of uh, witnesses testifying to the harassment that they endured, which led this judge, who I should point out was a judge that was uh, nominated by President Trump, to conclude that, yes, there is really harassment going on, to order it to stop, and also to order them to stop posting people's pictures on social media, and to also point out that it is not necessarily illegal to drop off, to return more than one ballot. 
some states do prohibit organizations from returning the ballots of large numbers of people. Just about all states that restrict sort of the group return of ballots permit people to return ballots for a family member, somebody who shares a household, for a caregiver to return a ballot for the person who they're giving care to. And sort of just to make it clear on their websites that that kind of return of an absentee ballot for someone else is totally legal. Thanks so much, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.